Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Once, when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, Why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. But someday, the groom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast. Beside, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the new wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, we've dedicated this year, as many of you know, to deepening our discipleship to Jesus. And we are doing that using the book of Mark um, as our template to understand in a deeper way who Jesus is and what it means to be his disciples, what it means to follow him. And for a few weeks, we've or excuse me, a few weeks ago, we looked at Mark's gospel, specifically being an invitation to discipleship to Jesus, an invitation to, as we're calling it, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, in order to do what Jesus did. It's fascinating to me that you can go to many churches, and you can be a Christian for a long time, and not realize that this is the call of the New Testament, to be a follower of Jesus, not just to be a Christian uh, culturally or, you know, in your cultural context, what that might look like, but specifically you are called to an apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth. And so that means that we, um, as disciples of Jesus, as Christians in our daily rhythms and habits, and then especially as we're studying this book together, we should be looking for rhythms, habits, and disciplines of Jesus' life that we can follow. I won't quote the whole thing, but Dallas Willard in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he talks about how discipleship to Jesus is not just, you know, taking a few pieces and then inserting them into our lives, but it is his overall way of life as our way of life totally. So in every way possible that we can we want to imitate the life of Jesus. Now, you guys remember years ago, uh, if you were a part of the Christian culture, you know, 20 years ago, there were those really cool bracelets. What would Jesus do, right? So cool. I had a rainbow one, true story. Um, yes, and I wore it proudly. Um, and th- actually, I think that that was a wonderful kind of resurgence of getting us back to what it means to be a Jesus follower. Probably the better question is, what would Jesus do if he were living my life? What would Jesus do if he were me? Right? Because, you know, so many times like, well, you know, I'm not Jesus. I'm not the son of God. And we just kind of like dismiss Jesus. Like, well, that doesn't really matter. That's really not relatable. But actually, that is the question that disciples are asked again and again and again. And throughout all the epistles, this is what the apostles and the writers of the New Testament are doing. They're taking the life of Jesus. They're putting it before the congregations and saying, are you living according to this pattern? You are suing one another. Is this what Jesus would do? You are repaying evil for evil. 
Oh, Jesus, you know, Peter said, Jesus gave us an example. You know, there was no deceit found in his mouth. You should follow likewise. The writers of the New Testament are doing this constantly. They are calling us to live our lives as though it, it were Jesus or as though Jesus were living our life. So we want to follow Jesus in his overall way of life as our way of life totally. And so this is a big focus of our studies through Mark, learning the rhythms of Jesus. Now, last week we saw how inviting those who are far from God to be in our lives was a mark of Jesus' life. It's one of the ways that we are to follow him that we are to seek after, to bring into our company those who are far from God, that we are not to be those who look at those who are outsiders, those who are sinners, whatever that label might be, as those who will taint us, but those who are waiting to be redeemed, those who are lost and in need of a Savior. Now, in this next section, continuing with this theme of conflict with the religious leaders, we have Jesus and his disciples once again out of sync with the cultural norms of the day. And in this passage, the people are curious about Jesus and disciples because they are not fasting. Remember last week I talked about living a questionable life. Living a life that provokes questions. And this is what Jesus is doing here, right? His life is curious. It prompts questions from those who are watching him. So John and John's disciples and the Pharisees fasted regularly, but not Jesus and his company. And in fact, if you read the Gospels, you'll find quite the opposite, right? Jesus is never found fasting. He's constantly found feasting. And at one, you know, he's accused of being a glutton, right? That's like a partier. That's what Jesus is accused of being, a glutton and a drunkard. So apparently Jesus liked to party a lot. He liked to feast a lot, and he would do it with some seedy characters. So why does Mark highlight this story and the story before what does this mean for followers and apprentices of Jesus? Let's, let's take a look at it. So, why do John, his disciples, and the Pharisees fast? And what is fasting again? You ever feel like that? Like, the pastor just, like, goes off on fasting. You're like, yeah, yeah, totally fasting. Yep, I'm with you. No idea what you're talking about. So, what is fasting? Well, in Christian tradition, we fast in order to gain some benefit. This might be for personal discipline, spiritual growth, victory um, over a certain sin. And let me just say, these are good things, and this is an effective practice to withhold from ourselves certain things, to give focus, to, you know, put in place uh, practices of prayer, practices of fellowship, practices of being in the word. Those are good things. Now, my understanding growing up, though I honestly didn't give much thought to it, I was just wearing my WWJD bracelet, right, was that fasting was in some sense a way to put God in your debt. You gave something up, perhaps Nintendo for a week or breakfast, so God owes you, naturally, right? Um, he owes you an answered prayer. He owes you something. And this is still a prevalent idea in the church. Now, the funny thing is that you cannot find either of these teachings in the Bible at all. Now, practicing or fasting as a spiritual discipline is great. You really can't find it in the Bible. And this idea of fasting in order to get God in your debt, again, you can't find it in the Bible. So what is true fasting? 
Well, in Scripture, what we find is that fasting is a whole body response to human grief and serious conditions. In the Jewish tradition, it was done during times of national crisis. Uh, you guys remember the book of Esther? Remember what happens in that story? There's a decree that the Jews are to be wiped out on a certain day, and so the nation of the Jews, though in exile, they, they send out word, and the whole nation fasts together. They're grieving their sin, they're turning from their sin, and they're saying, God, be merciful to us. So it was done during times of national crisis, or times of drought, famine, destructive earthquakes, crop disease, military attack, or attack from wild predators. This is the history of fasting and Judaism. Scott McKnight, in his commentary in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, fasting means a human being refrains from food or drink or both for a limited time in response to some sacred or grievous moment. Such sacred or grievous moments include death, the threat of war, sin, our neediness, or our fear of God's judgment on our sin, whether personal or national. And the focus of the Bible on fasting is not what we get from fasting or on motivating people to fast in order to acquire something, but instead lands squarely on responding to sacred moments in life. That's what you find historically. Why does this matter? Why am I even talking about this? Well, during the first century, the religious leaders, we need to understand this, the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, had such a powerful influence over the Jewish culture. Even the Sadducees, who were actually considered liberal progressives that did not believe in many of the things that were written in Scripture, they had to even go along with the Pharisees because they had such sway over the people and culture of the day. So during this time, what we find during the time of the first century and second temple Judaism, the Pharisees had instituted a twice-weekly fast. Why? The reason was to show God their repentance and grief over their past sins, whether personally or nationally, so that God would then restore them and end the exile. Now, this might be new to some of you Christians, Bible students, but this is a huge theme of the Gospels. And what the people of God in the first century and te second temple Judaism were waiting for was the end of exile. Yes, Babylon. They had been out of Babylon for some 400 years, but you know, since that, they had been ruled by Gentile powers. So even though they were not out of the country per se, even though they were back in the land, they were still being ruled by Gentile powers and Gentile kings. They did not have freedom. They did not have really uh, authority over the land. So the Jews at this time saw themselves still in exile and they were waiting for Messiah. They're waiting for Messiah to come and to overthrow the Gentile powers and to give them back the land and then to rule over the kingdom of David once again. And so this is what's going on so many times in the Gospels is the Jewish longing for the end of exile, for God to finally bring about the Messianic kingdom. So remember, I just said fasting is a whole body response to human grief and serious conditions i.e. the exile, Roman occupation and rule over the people of God. So within Judaism, at the, this time, was the thinking, if we get back to rigid covenant keeping by doing Mosaic law, God will bring about the kingdom. 
And we actually know this from later rabbinic Judaism. The dominant view of the Pharisees and religious elites of the day was that the long-awaited Messiah and God's salvation would only come when Israel had made itself ready and worthy by observance of religious law. I've talked about this before, but this is what Paul the Apostle is doing. He is a zealot for the law because he believes it is through the zeal of Phineas that the exile will be ended, that the messianic king will be enthroned. So John, his disciples, and the religious leaders fast as a national response to still being in exile. Their prayer is probably similar to that of the Psalms, restore us again. God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Now, the unfortunate thing is that this fasting became a kind of virtue signaling of its day, right? Showcasing your own holiness or righteousness to others. It then became a way to shame and rebuke the sinful among Israel. And this is probably what Jesus is referring to in the Sermon on the Mount. So, okay. This seems like a legitimate good thing, right? If done right, like, we should fast. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So why do Jesus and his followers then reject this practice? Like, if if this is a whole-body response to sin, if this is a whole-body response to suffering, if this is a way to align ourselves with God's heart and, and for God to have mercy on us, like, what's wrong with this? Why is Jesus doing this? Well... Jesus does not share the religious leaders nor John and his disciples' assessment of the time. And that is why he does not fast. So let's be clear. Jesus is not down on fasting in general. He actually teaches on the topic in the Sermon on the Mount and implies that his disciples will fast, saying, when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast. But again, Jesus does not share the sentiment of the religious leaders nor their understanding of the time. Jesus' point here seems to be that John's disciples and the Pharisees have not discerned correctly what time it is. And we find this again and again in Jesus' conversations with the religious leaders. You are not discerning the time. You can tell what the weather is going to be, but you do not know the day. You do not know the hour. How is it possible? And what Jesus is saying is it's not time to fast It's time to feast and celebrate. Now, this sermon is probably going to seem pretty out of context for this (laughs) this week. I assure you it is not. I've thought long and hard about this. I'll go on. It's time to fast. It's time to feast and celebrate. And the reason is because the bridegroom is here and the wedding feast is at hand. Or another way to put it would be the king, the messianic king is here and the kingdom of God, as Jesus has been saying, is at hand. Now it's interesting to note, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom, which the prophets use as an image or metaphor for Yahweh himself and his relationship with the nation of Israel. You can find that in Isaiah 50, verse 1, Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 8, Isaiah 62, verses 4 through 5, Jeremiah 2, 2, and I will put my notes on the website. I don't need to tell you the rest of them. Now, 
I'm simplifying it for us, but Jesus responds with three many parables or metaphors talking about weddings, clothing, and wine. So here's the first thing that he says in response to their question. You wouldn't fast for a wedding, would you? Now, can you imagine this? I mean, I love Jesus, like the way that he has conversations with people, because he always uses irony and sarcasm, and it's just great, right? So, I mean, just imagine going to, like, your nephew's wedding, your dear friend's wedding. You've been invited as a guest, and you show up, and you look like crap, right? You haven't washed your hair for weeks. You're in grubby clothing, right? You know, you wore your tennis shoes, whatever, right? And then everybody else is feasting and celebrating, and there you are in the corner moping. Why? You decided to fast for the wedding. Like, like, go home. Go home. You are so inappropriate and disrespectful right now, right? Everybody agrees that this would totally be inappropriate, right? Yes. Wow. We're getting all Pentecostal up in here. This This is exciting. Good job, everybody. Totally inappropriate, so disrespectful to the day, the family, the couple. So we get what Jesus is saying. He gives another example. You wouldn't patch an old coat with new fabric, would you? Now, anybody patch a coat recently? Probably not, right? No, we're, we're Americans. We just go buy a new one, right? But he gives this example because he talks about shrinking cloth and that pulling away and being worse But the idea is it won't last, it doesn't fit, it doesn't match. I love the message translation here. Eugene Peterson says this, No one cuts up a fine silk scarf to patch old clothes. I love that. Yeah, like it's just ridiculous. It's out of place. And lastly, he says, You wouldn't put new wine into cracked bottles. Why? Or, you know, new wine into old wineskins. Because it will explode. It's not done fermenting, right? And so those bottles or those wineskins are going to explode and the wine will be spoiled. You will lose both. So in all these ways, what Jesus is saying is that the old ways of thinking and living cannot contain the new thing that God is doing. They are out of joint and inappropriate. But I want to specifically focus on Jesus' metaphor of the bridegroom and wedding. You see, the religious leaders see this time as exilic punishment. The exilic judgment for all of Israel's sins, they are still in exile. And they see it as a time to mourn and lament. But Jesus likens himself to the bridegroom, and he says this time is the time of the wedding. Now, as I said, this was a way that the scripture often talked about God's relationship with Israel and God's plan for Israel. The coming kingdom of God was likened to a great wedding feast, and Jesus loves to use this metaphor in many of his parables. So why a wedding feast? Well, think about our own wedding celebrations. You know, it's the culmination of so much work, planning, anticipation, and you come to the day and all all the plans have been made, the day is set, everything is prepared, and then the day comes, and it's a day of total celebration. Like, you know, it doesn't matter how, like, involved your mom got or your mother-in-law got and how much 
like hell they gave you, you know, in planning your wedding. When that day comes, like you don't even care. It's just like, I'm here. And some of us don't even remember because it was so like euphoric. It's like, I just remember her eyes or his eyes and I, or whatever, you know, like because you're just in this like transcendent euphoric state. The day of total celebration, everyone is looking so lovely in their finest clothes. There's incredible food, incredible drink to enjoy. There's dancing and singing. There are tears of joy and laughter. And really, as far as human experience, whether we have been married or not, being invited to a wedding, celebrating a wedding, is a day to end all days. They are days to be remembered. Not just because of the covenant that is made, though that is vitally important, but also because of just the atmosphere of what's happening. And scripture uses this incredible metaphor to help us picture what the kingdom of God will be like. Absolute and total bliss. Listen to how the prophet describes the scene. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. We have anticipated him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You guys, it's a day to end all days. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That day he will swallow up the covering that is cast over all people. He will swallow up death forever. What a day. What a day of celebration. What a day of victory. What a day of bliss. In Revelation, the same event is referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. The angel said to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it goes on and says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Tim Keller, in his book, Encounters with Jesus, he says this, The marriage supper of the Lamb celebrates at long last the intimate and permanent union of people who love each other. And this is how history ends. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. We, the bride, the people Jesus has loved, will finally be united with him. The most rapturous love of a wedding couple on earth is just the dimmest hint and echo of that cosmic future reality. So listen to what Jesus is saying. In his estimation, this is the time that they are in. The kingdom is here. It's time to celebrate and invite any and all to the great wedding celebration. Remember remember that parable that Jesus tells of the 
the king who's throwing a, a wedding for his son, and he invites all of his friends, and everybody's busy doing more important things. And then he says, go out into the highways, go out into the byways, go to the corners, go to the, you know, where the seedy people hang out, and invite any and everyone into my feast, for my house will be filled. Jesus uses this metaphor again and again and again to invite anyone and everyone to this great celebration. So here's a question then. In, in light of that context of the religious leaders and them fasting, in light of Jesus and his posture in the situation, the question is, how does the kingdom of God come? This is the undergirding question of this conversation. How does the kingdom of God come? Is it through religious zeal? Is it through fasting, mourning, sacrifice, and human earning? Or does the kingdom of God come as a sheer act of God's mercy, grace, and faithfulness? How does it come? How does the mercy of God come into your life? How does the mercy of God, the kingdom of God, reach any of us? Is it through religious zeal, through fasting, mourning, sacrifice, and human earning? Or is it as a sheer act of God's mercy, his grace, and his faithfulness? Now you see, the kingdom is already here in Jesus. And it didn't come because of Israel's faithfulness. Quite the opposite. It comes about because of the faithfulness and love of God. God's kingdom comes as a sheer act of grace and not because of religious zeal, not now and not ever. So then, what does all this mean for disciples? Two thoughts for application. First, I think one big idea here is a warning about missing out on the kingdom work of God. Because we are so sure that we know what that is supposed to look like. Now, maybe this is more in a personal way. Many of us have our list that we give to God. Okay, God, like, I give my life to you, but now I want you to help me here, here, and here. And we give our list, you know, it's like our, you know, honey list to God to do these things for us. And my question would be, what if God isn't doing or wanting to do any of those things? What if he wants to do something totally unexpected? And what if then we, the people of God, miss out on the kingdom of God? Or God's work in our lives and our time what God wants to do in this time, in this generation, because we are so certain of what it should look like. Think about the last little vignette that we read in Mark, right? The insiders, the religious leaders, those who know scripture are not part of the feast and the celebration. The insider has become an outsider, and the outsider has become an insider. You know, I think this all the time. I look around at the church, not necessarily our church, so this isn't like my moment to just like, that's right, everybody, here we go. But I just look at the church nationally, especially, 
And I think about all of the deconstruction stories that are coming out. You know, well, I used to think this, and I used to think that, and I used to be this, and I used to be... But now, you know, I've realized this. And so you've got these people who claim to be insiders and claim to know what God is doing and to be at work. And what we're finding is that these people are actually becoming outsiders because they are not discerning the time. They are not discerning the work of God. And they are, in fact, disqualifying themselves from the kingdom of God and from the mercy of God. And I think what we're going to see over the next few years is the church be totally reconfigured. And those who are inside now, prominent leaders and voices in the church, we've already seen this. I mean, I mean, this is what happened in the emergent movement. This is what happened in, like, in liberalism. This is always what happens. The insiders are becoming outsiders. And lo and behold, the outsiders will become insiders. And all according to God's mercy. So this question of what is God doing, how does God want to work, this question should really humble us and keep us open to the Holy Spirit. How may God want to work in a new way? I think about the church's history, everything from the inclusion of the Gentiles to the many times God has brought revival. If you read history, you'll know that in these moments, it wasn't the respectable religious insiders that experienced the presence and power of God. Think about Wesley. Think about Whitfield. Where was their ministry taking place? Where was revival striking? It was striking in the fields because the Church of England would not get on board with what the Spirit of God was doing. They couldn't wrap their heads around it. You think about what happened. I mean, and this has happened all throughout history. I even think about, you know, back in the 60s and and early 70s, right? It was the hippies our parents, uh, in our parents' days, it was that group who were outsiders culturally, who were outsiders to the church, and God made them insiders. And many of those who were insiders, they've just gone the way of the dodo, right? In history, again, it was never the respectable religious insiders. It was the outsider and outcast, the ignorant and common people, we even see this in the book of Acts, who become the people of God, while those who have a claim on the heritage of God's people find themselves outside the kingdom of God. Gosh, I mean, this should be a warning to any and all of us. Be students of the scripture. Keep your eye focused on Jesus. Watch how he works. Listen to the things that he says. Give thought and wait to these things. So again, how does the kingdom of God come? Is it through religious zeal, through fasting, mourning, sacrificing, human earning, or does the kingdom of God come as a sheer act of God's mercy, grace, and faithfulness? Look at history. Look at what Jesus is saying here. Now, that doesn't mean that we stop seeking his will. It doesn't mean that we stop walking in righteousness and truth. Like, you know, Paul says in the letter to the Romans, shall we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve over sin and brokenness. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't fast and pray for the situation that we're in currently. But I do think that it does mean that underneath all of that, we remember that God works and brings about his kingdom because of his goodness, mercy, and faithfulness, not ours. So what we want to always be asking is, what is God doing, 
And how can we be sensitive to that and be a part of his kingdom work? And this is a question that we are always asking here at Refuge. Uh, as leaders, we're talking to you guys personally and, of course, from the pulpit. What is God doing locally? How can we be part of that work? How can we rethink how we are pursuing the kingdom of God and bringing the kingdom of God to bear upon our city and our county? Secondly, application-wise, I think a question is, as disciples of Jesus, do our lives show forth a doom and gloom, mourning the past sins, and seeing this present time as God's judgment on the church or the world? Or do our lives show forth a kingdom hope and a prophetic hope? Now, you're like, what are you talking about? Okay, give me, let me give you an example. Anybody familiar with James White? I'm going to do that thing where I name, like, a popular, like, church theologian and <laughs> maybe discredit them a little bit. James White came out and said, coronavirus is something that was invented by the Chinese to wipe out the remaining Republican conservative party in America so that Bernie Sanders and others can start the Communist Socialist Party here and the whole world can be communist. Talk about doom, gloom, and just like insanity. Like, can I just say that? Like, this is ridiculous. You remember when September 11th happened, or even when the fires happened, I had friends, associates, people that I knew, articles that I read in, in both of these situations, terrible, terrible things that were happening, whether that's happening in, on September 11th, that's happening in another country, that's happening in our own place with the fires, and many times the people of God will say idiotic things like, this is God's judgment on those people. You know what was said about the fires by one person that I know? The fires of Santa Rosa were a judgment of God because Santa Rosa is filled with a bunch of drunkards. Oh, okay, yeah. There aren't any drunkards in San Francisco, though, you know, or, uh, you know, in Walnut Creek or anything. Uh, we're, we're uniquely drunk, apparently, in, you know, Santa Rosa and Sonoma County, which maybe we are. I don't know. <laughs> like, maybe I should do some, you know, social digging. Um, what a thing to say, though. What an interesting perspective to bring to bear upon um, a cultural situation, and especially one that brings heartache, one that brings bereavement. And I've asked this question before, but how do we see the world? Do we see the world as being um, sinners in the hands of an angry God waiting to be judged? Do we see the world as a people to be loved? When we read the scripture, how do we define humans? Do we find them as those who, God, those who are sinners? Or do we define it, I would say, as we read in scripture, as those who are dearly loved by God? It really depends on our view of God, our view of God's grace, our view of the gospel. So, Going back again to this question, do our lives show forth a doom and gloom, mourning the past sins and seeing the present time as God's judgment on the church or the world, or do our lives show forth a kingdom hope and a prophetic hope? Sometimes I love to imagine what it will look like for Sonoma County to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Sometimes I like to imagine what it will look like for this place to be filled with the Spirit of God relationships and family to be healed 
for the need of our social services for mental health and for counseling for families, for that to diminish because we are loving one another and supporting one another. We've been filled with God's spirit and conviction about taking care of one another. What would it look like for this place to be filled with the spirit of God? Remember Peter's words to the church. In 1 Peter, this is a church that is on the fringe of society, suspect to the authorities, being ostracized, criticized, and even persecuted. And Peter's words to them are about living out our hope in resurrection. Or living now the life of the kingdom of the heavens. Or take Paul the Apostle's vision. We, we talked about this a couple months ago. But Paul saw what God did in and through Jesus as the climax of the story of the world. It was the defeat of sin and evil and death at the cross. It was the resurrection from the dead, the ascension of the Son of Man to the right hand of God, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, God's presence here on earth with individual people, with his church. It was the breaking in of the new age in the rule of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God has come and is wide open. That's how Paul, that's how the apostles saw this world. That's how they saw this time. It wasn't a time to mourn per se. It wasn't a time to grieve. It wasn't a time to sit and think about, oh, we're in exile. Woe is me. It was a time for action. It was a time for prophetic hope. So again, do our lives reflect that same joy and celebration of Jesus? Because according to Jesus' timetable, it is time to proclaim that the kingdom offer is here. To believe, to join, to receive that same living hope. Do we share Paul's vision of the kingdom? It's already done. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Do we live with that same joyous and hopeful outlook? Or are we reminiscing about the good old days? I was on a panel a few years ago with a dear friend of mine. It was interesting. We were there with a um, couple other older pastors, and they were asking us, you know, kind of, what do we see in the future? And, and kind of, you know, what do we see God doing? What are we anticipating? What are we afraid of? And it was really interesting to hear many of the older generation just give such a pessimistic view of where everything is going. Just totally doom and gloom, total hopelessness. And me and my friend were just looking at each other like, are you going to say it or am I going to say it? Like, who's, who's going to be the odd man out here, you know? Um, and so finally it came that, you know, they passed the mic to us and we answered we are very, very hopeful about the future because we believe that we are living in God's world. We believe that Jesus Christ is the rightful king of the world and every attempt to live outside of him will fail. The narrative of secular humanism will fail. It already is failing and people, it's hemorrhaging and people are fleeing from it. And you know what? We get to be the people to offer living water to those people where their view of sexuality has, uh, according to the secular narrative, has not lived up to its promises. And we get to offer the incredible promises of the gospel. 
We get to offer that living water that Jesus offers to the woman at the well. We see this as a time for reaping and harvesting, not a time for mourning and fasting. The kingdom of the heavens is advancing. So again, is your life defined as joyful feasting that attracts people, welcoming, as we saw last week, to the feast of God? Or are you a dismal, wet blanket, preaching doom and gloom, condemning all those around you? Now, this celebratory life that I'm talking about here is not blind optimism. Life is hard and filled with many dangers, toils, and snares. But remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's not in my notes, so I have to actually look in my physical Bible. Uh, What do we got here? Am I in the right book? That's what I'm asking myself now. Not helpful. All right. This is the one where he says we are hard-pressed on every side. And, you know, we are crushed. And he just keeps on, like, juxtaposing, like, the fact that, like, we are hopeful at the same time. Like, God is at work. He's with us. He's conquering. He's doing this. And and he's weighing all these things out. And at one point in time in Paul's letters, he says, I consider that the present sufferings of this life are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So Paul does not practice blind optimism. And he just says, oh, God is sovereign and it'll be okay. And just don't think about the bad. He says, no, I have weighed it all out. I have calculated it all. And Paul lived a crappy life. Like, when you think about, like, the things that he suffered, the things that he went through, escaping death, being floating in the ocean for three days one time, being shipwrecked three times, like, being beaten and whipped and driven out of cities, all these things. And he says, this is not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed. So the celebratory life isn't blind optimism that we're talking about But it is that underneath and beyond all that, a trust that the power of God and the kingdom of God is greater than any threat that could ever come our way. And I believe that that is what Jesus, that is how Jesus lived. That is how Jesus thought. So I will leave you with this. Leslie Newbegin, the great missionary to India, once said, I am neither an optimist or a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And there it is. I am not a pessimist. I'm not an optimist. Christ is risen from the dead. He dies no more, death having no power on him. And one day he will put away death forever and we will rule and reign with him in the kingdom of God. And that is worth celebrating every single day. And that is a story and an invitation worth inviting every single person we know to. And that should mark our lives more than anything else in this life. The victory of God. The wedding supper of the Lamb and inviting people to this. The promises that since he died and rose again, we also have given our allegiance to Jesus will rise again and be partakers of that joyous kingdom of God. Life without end. And that life and celebration begins now. So may the Lord strengthen us 
especially in days of like mass hysteria, COVID-19, everybody freaking out and doing these things, which, you know what, if I didn't have hope in Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead, I'd probably do, be doing similar things too. I'd probably go raid CVS and Target and Costco for toilet paper, right? Like, I'm, going, I'm getting it all. I'm doing everything I can. I'm stockpiling. I'm doing all these things to lay a good foundation and security for myself. And if that's you, okay, go ahead. We'll be coming to you for the next few years for toilet paper, apparently. <laughs> but please, underneath all that, weigh out the promises of the gospel. Remember the life of Jesus. Remember that you are a follower and an apprentice of Jesus. See how he lived. Ask yourself that question. How would Jesus live my life? And follow so. Let's pray together. Lord, in the words of St. Francis, make us instruments of your peace. Lord, where there is hatred, let us so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Oh, divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, and it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Lord, help us to live out that kingdom life, that prophetic hope to our neighbors. Just as the early church did during the plague, would we be faithful to love one another? Would we be faithful to love our neighbors and even our enemies? Would we be determined to do good to build upon that sure foundation that we have in Jesus Christ, and especially in times like this. Our gospel was made for a dying and diseased world. Would we not forget that? Our gospel has seen the plagues of Rome. It has seen the bubonic plague. It has seen mass genocide and awful things, and yet it still marches on. Your kingdom is advancing Would we live out that hope starting today? We pray this in your name.